Listener Production. We have arranged our societies in ways that are high convenience, that don't require people to use their physical capacities, and it's really a case of use it or lose it. And so what we see in a lot of industrialised societies is people suffering from lifestyle diseases, which have often got their roots in a lack of activity and a lack of physical exertion. I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe, and this is Fast Track. I do think it's the ultimate quest by so many of my clients and colleagues to live well and perform well. People have called it thriving or flourishing, and we all want to and need to perform at work, but this often comes at the expense of our well-being or our physical health. Getting the balance right and the consistency right is transformative. Dr Gordon Spence is a well-known coaching psychologist who has focused his research and applications as a loved teacher at the University of Sydney and the University of Wollongong's Business School. He's an author, a researcher, he's a coaching psychologist and a lifelong learner. His specialty area is the psychology of peak performance and his latest work, Get Moving, Keep Moving, focuses on healthy ageing. I've invited Gordon here today because he's an awesome person who can help us understand how we can perform well by living well. Gordon, welcome to Fast Track. It's really lovely to see you again. Thank you for having me. I called you a lifelong learner. You completed three degrees from the age of 30 after a decade in banking and trading. And now you've just completed another degree. Can you take us on this journey that frankly makes you uniquely qualified to help us perform well by living well? Yeah, I can do that. I suppose to understand it, I need to take you back to just before, and I'm going to give the game away. When I was 48, I was fairly inactive. Um, I was heaviest that I think I'd ever been. And I was finding that I was living life in a way that was not highly energised. I was tired a lot. I'd get two or three colds a year pretty regularly. And with the looming landmark of my 50th year coming, I, I had, I guess, you know, what some people would refer to as a midlife crisis. My midlife crisis was around low levels of activity and things that I wasn't doing that I kind of knew were important to me. So anyway, what I decided to do was to start running again. This is something that I used to do much earlier in my life and enjoyed a great deal. I started on that process and I decided that I was going to run a marathon before I turned 50. Some people go out and buy a Ferrari. I wanted to, to run a marathon. Again, second one. And so that's what I committed myself to doing. Um, and to cut a long story short, I guess what happened for me across the course of the next couple of years and then beyond that was I, I started to really get back into running and really enjoy it and brought it back into my life in a really solid way. And as I did that, I, I started to go on a journey into myself in, in, in terms of my physical self and also the psychology of it all. And I was having a great time. And I was really tuning in to what was going on, particularly physically, but also, as I say, psychologically. And I got so intrigued by this that I thought, you know what I think I'll do? I think I need to do some more study. This was 12 years after finishing my PhD and vowing and declaring that I would never study again. 
And what, what happened was, to sort of fill in the gaps, I finished the marathon, that was fine. I did some other things, took on some other challenges and really just decided that I wanted to learn more about the physical side of, of my experience. And so I found myself at the age of 51 back in an undergraduate class doing functional anatomy and uh, just going on that journey again. I've been doing that four years. I'm just about finished and it has been the most extraordinary uh, learning journey and uh, I've, I've taken a lot away from it. One of the things that I've then done with that is I've, I've started to, and this is my great interest now, is fusing psychology and exercise science and bringing those two things together. And so throughout that whole process, I've got really very interested in healthy aging and starting to think about what can be done to improve people's ability to age in a way that allows them to live the whole of their life to the fullest so that we're able to get into those later stages of life feeling like we've really you know, maximised all the opportunities that we've had. Wow, what a journey and also makes you incredibly uniquely qualified from deep personal experience, the academic overlay, and then now writing this book about performing well and living well and getting moving and keeping moving. What's your working theory about performing well by living well? What's the fundamental? Look, I think the thing that continually strikes me about that is is really the, the constant small decisions that people can make along the way that allow them to put themselves into a position where they're able to get the most out of themselves. And particularly, you know, just the, the daily decisions that people make. And so I recently was blogging on some of these topics and I, I wrote a, a blog which was entitled Recovery Requires Disconnection and Connection. And so what I was really referring to there and really reflecting on was the challenge that a lot of people have these days around psychological detachment from work, uh, a challenge that's that's exacerbated by telepressure, by, you know, the use of technology that can make it really hard for us to separate work from life and life from work uh, and to be able to really sort of detach in a way that allows any sort of recovery process to, to kick off. And so when I talk about the decision-making processes, you know, the decisions that people have, these small decisions, it's about how they interact with technology and then, you know, sort of understanding that these are some of the things that can control our, our lives and that can also capture our attention and, and direct our energy in ways that don't always sustain us particularly well. And so what's really important is that we are focused on doing things that allow us to separate, to detach. But then if we're able to do that, then also finding ways that we can connect with other things in our life for instance, like experiences with nature or other things that allow our attention to rest for us to be able to recover. And so there's a whole series of little decisions that can be made in there, right, that can often be missed if we're not bringing awareness and attention to them. So, you know, I'm constantly reflecting on that and in the work that I do, I'm constantly trying to help people to get better at spotting the moments when they've missed perhaps an opportunity to, you know, take a moment, take five minutes, take 20 to stop what they're doing, and allow regeneration or recovery to occur. Mm. And there's a variety of different ways that that can happen. But um, I think, you know, the secrets are often in those small spaces, those small intervals of time um, mm. that we need to bring awareness to. And you call it recovery or connection, disconnection. Mm. And I really like that language around that. It helps really bring to life that picture of how we might make those small decisions during the course of our working days. Mm. So 
You've written many papers on well-being, mm. and I'll confess, there's one that I just keep going back to that you wrote a few years ago, mm. and you say the programs that do not work in the workplace. So what's not working about our approach to well-being in the workplace? Yeah, well, I know we've talked about that paper before, and, and I still think that many of the things I wrote about in that paper are still quite current. And my reflection on it has been that when it comes to health and wellbeing program and organisations, it's really interesting to me that one of the big challenges that a lot of people who sponsor and, and support wellbeing programming in organisations is that they don't tend to get taken up, that the participation rates tend to be quite low. And you've got to wonder why that is. And so the paper kind of talks about that. My thinking on it's changed a little bit in recent times. And I think one of the reasons that participation rates tend to be quite low on these employer-sponsored programs is that they very much rest on a health promotion ethos. And so in some ways, a lot of the health and wellbeing program that goes on in organisations, almost like the organisation setting up a wellbeing shop front, right, where employees go to grab whatever it is they need. And generally, they're doing that on the basis of being provided with a lot of health promotion information, which is probably stuff they're already very familiar with. If there's one thing that health promoters have become very good at over the years, it's pumping out information about research and guidelines and various things that they are hoping people will absorb in respect of how much they're moving, what they're eating, how much sleep they're getting, all those things. 10,000 steps a day. 10,000 steps a day, two serves of fruit, Pyramid, five of veggies, pyramid, all of yeah. that stuff, yeah. right? We, we know it all. We, yeah. we get it sort of ad nauseum in a way. We don't do it, no. And, and I think part of that is that a lot of it is ground in, well, we need to do that to lower risk factors. So there's a fear-based messaging in behind that. And when you get enough of that sort of stuff, I mean, fear is a great motivator, but it can also tune people out. When you get the same messages over and over and over again, then people start to almost sort of begin to experience it as white noise, right? Mm. And so I think there's real limitations to that health promotion type stamp, mm. you know, that perspective. And so um, what I think is perhaps a better approach and what I see less of in organisations are programs or processes that allow people to be able to start to make some decisions for themselves based on what they've already absorbed from that health promotion sort of messaging that they've received over time. We still need health promotion. I'm not dissing it, not at all. But well, not alone, that's just not enough. Exactly, exactly. And so we're the process of for helping people to make their own decisions. And so part of what I've done in the book is written the book around a, a, a core model, which is the health activation model. And that health activation model is a process for getting people to work through and start to think about the sort of life that they would like to have as they age and, and sort of move, move through the decades. But also it's a decision-making framework as well so that people can think about what they might like to do and then think about the sorts of things that they could do that they would enjoy. I think when it comes to particularly physical activity and, and, and movement, if people are able to make decisions that lead them to do things that they would get some satisfaction and enjoyment from, then half the challenge is going to going to be met. And giving people autonomy, of course, of in course. their choices for their own life rather than I should go to yoga today but I don't like yoga and I should be, you know, being mindful but that way doesn't suit me. So I, I think the thing that people do is that they'll often go, yes, 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 I need to get fit, I need to get fit because I've had a birthday or I've been to the doctor mm. or done whatever. And then they go for the sort of almost the most obvious thing or the thing that their friend is doing or whatever. There's not a whole lot of 
thought going into it and perhaps they didn't even really see much in terms of the range of options, yeah. um, which is where the follow-up book is coming because that's what I'm now about to do, or actually writing it at the moment, is writing a, a, a kind of a, almost a field guide to the different forms of physical activity and exercise options that are out there, from the conventional to the unconventional, to give people a way of kind of looking at the full gamut of possibilities such that they might be inspired to go out and do something that they may never have considered before. But actually, when they get in and try it, they might find that that's the very thing that they've always needed. That's awesome. Now, so we're about to lead into this because we just touched on it slightly, but at the heart of performing and living well is the big M, motivation. Sure. Right? Now, <laughs> why is it we can be intrinsically motivated by something and yet still not act on it? Most commonly is our physical well-being. So you just touched on it. I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to, I should, but we don't do it. You're the coaching psychologist, the researcher, the academic. What is going on there with the big M? Yeah, and it's a funny thing. And, you know, there's some scholars that have talked about the, the paradox of exercise. You know, it kind of comes back to the point that I was making before. We know that this is good for us, yet we don't do it. Yeah, you could also talk about a paradox of diet or balanced diet. We know that it's good for us, but we often don't do it. It's almost like that we're attracted to doing the wrong thing. That's exactly right. And, you know, there could be lots of different reasons for that. But I think when it comes to, uh, when it comes to the motivational questions, again, I come back to what I was just saying before, which is well, what, are, what are the decision-making processes that people are going through and what is it that, that is influencing people to make the decisions that they are making? If people are feeling like they are somehow being required to do something or pressured to do something either by an authority figure, like a doctor or a, or a partner or whoever else, then, yeah, okay, that can motivate us but it can be a quite an unstable, unreliable source of motivation because if, if that external source of motivation isn't there anymore, I haven't seen the doctor for a while or whatever else, then, then the, the effort can collapse. So when it comes to matters of these sorts that we're talking about, I think that motivation, and it sounds cliched, but it's very true, is best to come from within. And so again, it comes back to how are those decisions being made? What's the process that's supporting it? And that's the space that I'm playing in. And I, I think that um, there's a lot more I want to do to try and to refine that so that it's it's something that people can easily kind of engage with such that they can get some benefit from it, such that they can then make the change that they'd like to make. In your book, Get Moving, Keep Moving, what did you discover about healthy ageing? One of the things I think that I have really understood much, much better is the capacity that we have, the sort of almost the unrealized capacity that we have in respect of our physical capability um, and how enduring that is, right? So there's been some really cool work done and published over the years from uh, evolutionary biologists on what happens in non-traditional communities in terms of the aging process and what um, older adults do, for instance, when they move beyond the reproductive years. And what, what they find in a lot of these traditional communities, it's, it sort of sits under this umbrella, the active grandparent hypothesis, which is what you find is that for older adults, they get busy, they work and support their children and their grandchildren, and they, they're very active in the communities that they are in. 
and their levels of fitness and their strength and all of those things are, are remarkable. You know, when you compare it across ages, particularly back into Western societies, these are some very fit um, older adults that are getting around in traditional communities. And it's, it reflects poorly in some ways on industrialised societies that we have arranged our societies in ways that are high convenience, that don't require people to use their physical capacities. And it's really a case of use it or lose it. And so what we see in a lot of industrialised societies is people suffering from lifestyle diseases, which have often got their roots in a lack of activity and a lack of physical exertion. And so one of the things that I've really understood is how much we can get from ourselves from a physical standpoint. And so I talk a little bit in the book about a concept that I'm, I'm referring to as self-directed ageism, which is this idea that, um, or ageism is obviously you know, the, a sort of a, um, a discrimination based on age, right? That it can influence all sorts of things. But self-directed ageism in this context is really this idea that me saying to myself, I can't do something because I'm 55 or 60 and that's not what 55-year-olds or 60-year-olds do, right, is that kind of mindset. It's a self-limiting mindset which rules out certain activities or certain options for me on the basis of age. When it comes down to our physiology and our basic makeup, a lot of that's just rubbish, right? And when you start to look at things like world records in in sporting disciplines like swimming or running, what you see is, yes, you see a decrease in world record times over the decades, but that doesn't really turn south until about the 70s. So when you're in your 70s, that's where you see a really sharp drop-off in those world record times. And then if you, if you look at uh, MRI scans of active 20-year-olds and active 70-year-olds and you look at their muscle mass and their, and their bone strength, you often don't see much of a difference. So the idea really? is that, yeah, if, if you use it, you keep it, right? And, and we have much more potential than we realise. And I think part of my mission, certainly with this book, but other things I'm going to be doing is to, to help people to understand, hey, yeah, okay, you might have a bit of a sore back and you might have, you know, some bursitis somewhere or whatever, but maybe there's something you can do about that because you're still sitting on a whole bunch of potential right, that's available to you. We just need to try and help you to, to sort of tap into that. Yeah. So, you know, the, the question is, how do we start? Or in my case, restart? Because during the pandemic, I went from walking, according to my watch, 10,000 steps a day in a room, yep. facilitating or between clients, to sitting on my bottom all day. So that was sort of like the stop start and the ten, I was making the 10,000 steps up in the morning on a big walk with my dog, but I was, I was really at neutral at that point, like I wasn't exercising. So I think the pandemic's mucked with a number of people. Some have got fitter, some have got less fit. Some have moved a lot, some haven't moved so much. It's really polarised people. Mm. I, I know there's a lot of people that have talked to me about how how sedentary they've become as a result of the pandemic and then other people at the other end of the spectrum, they've never been fitter, mm. right? And mm. you can see that from, you can also sort of see, see some of that from the, from the data that sports watch companies and stuff have been publishing, that there's massive spikes because people got out and they moved and as much as they could. So, yeah, it's really polarised people yeah. a lot. And someone like me was incidental exercise that I was missing. So I was sitting down all day. So how do I get the motivation to restart? What do you recommend for people? I think one of the, one of the things that's really important, and again, the book covers it, is having a why. 
Is having sort of a reason to want to get started in the first place? And I think that needs to, it's, it's good if that's a little bit more than, mm, I just want to drop some weight. Because that's fine, that can, that can get you going. But then when you drop that weight, often what happens is people stack it back on again because they think, oh, well, job done and, you know, that's, that's that. I, I think it's more beneficial if we can actually have a, have a think about what sort of a life do we want to have? What's this building towards? And I think you might want me to talk a little bit about one of the interviews I did in the book with the, with the rowing crew. I, I, one stage I, I went out and I interviewed a, a master's rowing crew. All these guys are in their 70s. And I did it. I did it because I had throughout the book been interviewing people who were 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, who had restarted and got themselves going again. And every time I spoke to somebody, in some way, they talked about how they wanted to age well. They wanted to engage in a healthy aging process, was essentially what they were saying. And most of them were saying something about how they wanted to be in their 70s. And as I was listening to you know, them in these different interviews, I thought, oh, that's interesting. I know a bunch of men who are in their 70s in a rowing crew who are doing this because my dad, before he passed, he rowed with them uh, at one stage. And, and I, got to, I got to know them a bit. So I thought, well, why don't I go and interview them? And so I did. I went down and I sat down and interviewed them because my reason for doing that was, well, these, are the, these people over here are saying they want what you've got. Let's hear about that. You tell us about what life is like in your 70s whilst you're still competitively rowing in master's, master's events. It was wonderful. I mean, these guys were just outstanding and they would talk about how the satisfactions that they had at living at that age and being able to do many, many things that their, that their contemporaries weren't able to do. Um, they weren't all in perfect health, but they were getting a whole lot out of life. They were getting a lot of satisfaction. They had a love of their sport, which was really feeding them in a massive way. And they had this connection to their rowing club. And this is a, another really important part um, that, you know, sort of helps to answer your question as well, is to not do it by yourself, is to, is to get involved in a community of others, which can help it be self-sustaining. And so for those men, that rowing club that they were a part of was much more like, you know, an extension of their family than it was anything else. And so you had this beautiful sort of combination of things that these, that these men were kind of experiencing. They were certainly experiencing good health. They certainly had less aches and pains and, and complaints compared to people of their same age. And uh, it, it was a joy to talk to them. Um, and certainly motivating for me. It's like, yeah, well, I want to be running into my 70s and my 80s. Mm. You know, being able to hear the voices of, of these guys was, was just terrific. Mm. I remember a doctor telling me uh, that my 95-year-old mother was in such good nick because she'd been so active all her life. Yeah. And right through and each decade actually added to the future decades for her in terms of her healthy ageing. Well, that, I kind of find that really interesting, right? Because a 95-year-old active like that is, is, is wonderful and she becomes almost a curiosity. Mm -hmm. She becomes a curiosity. As opposed to the norm. Well, yeah, that's right. But then if you were to go and talk to some evolutionary biologists, they wouldn't be so curious about that because of what they know about the potential of the human body and what we're capable of, that your mother was probably organising her life in a way that allowed her to maximise that. Mm. And in some, some ways that's almost not so remarkable, really, from sort mm -hmm. of an evolutionary standpoint, but yet, 
you know, we're kind of used to people coming to bits a bit when they're into their 70s and 80s and that's not what we expect now. And back to the mindset and the beliefs and the expectations about what healthy ageing looks like and why we talk about it. As I'm talking to you, I'm thinking about some of the things that I say about ageing and how that's not actually useful for me and how it could be better. We need to be a little bit careful because healthy ageing isn't just about your physical status. Okay, tell me more. It's not just about your physical status. It's a a big part of that, right? But healthy ageing, the way it's been defined and, and, you know, your listeners might be interested to know that we are currently living in the decade of healthy ageing. So 2021 to 2030 has been designated as the decade of healthy ageing by the WHO. Right, so it's all happening kind of right now, and and so really, what a healthy aging is about is is getting into the later stages of life, feeling empowered uh, in such a way that we can continue to live a full productive life. Right now, that doesn't mean that I have perfect health, but what it can mean is that I might have some impairment, but at least I am surrounded by a sort of a community with resources and tools and the beliefs in me as an older person that I can continue to express myself and continue to put myself out into the world in a way that is fulfilling and satisfying, right? So it's a bigger idea than just being, you know, Physically. 95 and mm. fit. It's, it's also got a whole lot more involved and we won't have time to talk about it, but it's, it's much more than that. I love that framing. I love that. I'm curious about any last tips and insights that help the listeners up their energy levels, their motivation, and ultimately create a longer life so they can perform well in all aspects of it. So, look, I, I think one of, the, one of the principles with any behaviour change, as you and I both well know, is to, you know, to start with manageable chunks, to not overextend uh, ourselves uh, at the beginning. Uh, I think that's really important, particularly if we're talking about, you know, getting going again, getting moving again, becoming more physically active. I have a client at the moment who, um, he's a, he's a, an achievement guy. And, uh, we had a chat about this when we first started a, a, a coaching engagement and we talked about his physical activity levels and how he wanted to reestablish a pattern of physical activity. And I also talked to him about, you know, managing that, not going at it too hard. And then the next day, I think he went out and, and did 45 case on the bike from nothing. Um, we had a chat about that. Go hard or go home. Well, yeah, that, that's right. And he, he, he realised that, that that was a mistake and so there was a little bit of management of expectations and all of that that needed to be done. But I think that that's one thing is to, is to set um, realistic expectations for ourselves. I think another thing is to just remember that we can get started at any point. There is no special date on the calendar that is the, the get started date for anything like this. And sometimes people like to try and tie these sorts of new fitness regimes to New Year's Day or the start of a season or whatever. And there's nothing special about any of these days. It's been researched. There's no magic there. Um, so we can really get started anytime. The other thing that I would say too is one thing that can stop people is what I would perhaps describe as historical ailments, you know, things that I've got a bad hip or a bad shoulder and 10 years ago the physio told me I'd never be able to do this and, you know, I've had a few conversations with people about that sort of stuff and, I've, you know, they've told me those sorts of things. I've said, oh, have you had that checked? Have you ever had that checked? Uh, no. They got told one time that there might have been a problem and they've never, and they've kind of sort of 
then use that as the basis for making decisions about what they can and can't do. So, you know, I would say if you're looking to try and get back into some form of regular physical activity, then it's probably worth consulting somebody about, you know, your physical status. And there's a whole chapter in the book on on the importance of doing that, such that when you get started, you're putting yourself in a good position to be able to get back into it in a way that allows you to enjoy it. Because at the end of the day, it should be fun. It should be enjoyable. So let's do the due diligence to make sure that we can allow that to happen. So a little bit of investment perhaps in, in seeing a doctor, seeing a physio, seeing a whatever, just to make sure you're in good working order or good enough working order would probably be a good idea as well. Dr. Gordon Spence, Get Moving, Keep Moving is your book on healthy ageing. You're an expert in performing well and living well. I can't wait for the next book to come, but thank you so much for being on Fast Track today. Pleasure to see you. My absolute pleasure. Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley. Producer, Tina Matalov. Audio production by Nikki Sitch. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.